This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hi again, everybody. I'm Duke Hip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, and we're very uh, delighted to have a great guest today on a very special day as well. Today is International uh, the UN's International Day of uh, Women and Girls in Science, and we're delighted to have with us today Dr. Rodero Romero Aldemita, or Dr. Ola, to those who know her well, the Executive Director at ISA at Southeast Asia Center. Now, ISA, of course, for our friends who tuning in, is the International Service for the Acquisition of Agrobiotech Applications, which is a, a long title, and they have a lot that they're working on, so it's an appropriate uh, um, uh, name, ISA, of course, for short. Dr. Ola, how are you this morning? I'm okay. I uh, woke up very excited to do this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, it's a, excellent. Thank you for joining us today. It is a special day, so that's where we're happy to have um, you to share your story with us and talk a little about um, your perspective on things that are happening around the region. And first off, our first first question out of the gate, I like to talk. Uh, as I mentioned again, a special day, UN's International Day of Women and Girls in Science, and it's a day to recognize really the critical role women and girls play in science and technology. And having you with us today really is so helpful to help illustrate where the, um, the sentiment uh, as far as you know, uh, what that represents with respect to your personal and professional journey. And I hope you don't mind. I did a little bit of homework uh, looking <laughs> on uh, online and found a really uh, interesting quote of yours from a few years ago. Uh, I hope it's okay if I, I, I share it. You said uh, at that time, I, I did not expect to be a scientist. You said, my inherent love for my family and my desire to improve our living conditions motivated me to study and work hard to become what I am today, which I thought was really insightful. So do you mind sharing a little bit more about your journey and the path that led you to become not only a scientist at ICE, but really such an accomplished one? Yeah, I, I'm very honored to say what happened to us, uh, uh, the days when we grew up. Actually, we are a middle-class family. My father and mother are both working people. My father was a sales uh, supervisor and my mother was a public school teacher. We're a family of five and I'm the second child, but my father uh, died early. So uh, it was a, a big shock and a big uh, turnaround on our lifestyle. So uh, raising five kids with my mother alone was very difficult. I was only 11 years old. And if you know, Dr. Gabi Romero is my brother. And he was only seven years old that time. So it was very difficult. So uh, when I was uh, entering the university, I was thinking of how can I help my family? So, uh, you know, my mother is a science teacher, as I said, and the potential, the genetic potential is already there. Yeah. It's just that I need the right environment to nurture it. My desire then was to be a doctor, a medical doctor, but because of financial constraints, I'm not able to do that. But it opened more doors because I, I, I uh, experienced that science is a much more exciting and challenging uh, area than medical field. So that's when I got into it. And then so uh, through hard work and persistence, I was able to complete my education via scholarships and fellowships. We, don't, we didn't have money, so we need to really persevere and study hard and get free tuition and allowance in order to finish. And that's what uh, drove me to, to what I am today. I, I want to help my family. Uh, I had uh, younger siblings who need help in their studies. So I finished 
my bachelor's and my master's and my PhD with flying colors through scholarships and fellowships. And I was still able to get to my postdoctoral uh, through a fellowship also by Albert Ludwig University with Peter Bayer uh, in the Golden Rice Project. So I was there uh, when in 2003 to 2005 so that uh, I was involved in the Golden Rice development and all that. So uh, those accomplishments were, were because of my persistence to help my family. And I didn't know that science would be it, would be my career. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's quite a story. And I, it, it, as you're sharing that, I couldn't help but think um, so many people played such a big role uh, along the way on your journey. And you'd mentioned your mother uh, being a teacher. I, I, that, that stuck with me. And that kind of leads me to my second question uh-huh. uh, with science and particular, particularly science, but all, really any discipline. It's so important for young people just starting in their careers or even before they really know what they want to do. Um, uh, to have role models, right? Good examples of those who really have excelled at a high level in their case, really blazed a trail, I'd say. So for those listening and watching this interview, young ladies in particular, who would you like to follow or who would like to follow in your footsteps rather? What advice would you give to them? Okay. Uh, well, if, if uh, anybody's interested, you can browse the ISO website. We have a publication on science and chi. And there are a lot of many different uh, experiences and how they move forward in their careers, and only in science, in business, and everything. But for myself, we know that in Asia, women are still regarded as second-class citizens, and it is the same in the Philippines. So, uh, but when you visit the academy and the research institutions, there are more women than men. So, uh, women have the brain to do science investigations and teach. However, women have to juggle between family and career, and that's what happened to us, to me as, my, uh, as well. That's why sometimes most women become single all throughout their life because they cannot juggle career and family at the same time. However, there are now women who were able to do it, uh, get into a career, but they have a family later, but uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's very difficult to, to get back to the workforce. So what I did is I did this, uh, these two things at the same time. So I was developing my career and taking care of my family at the same time, but it is with the help of our uh, close-knit family. And in Asia, this is one important factor which makes uh, women go forward and establish their career and at the same time they build their family. So in, in, uh, in, in retrospect, I was when I was at, uh, at Erie, when I was still a uh, student assistant, and then I became a regular worker, that was when I was uh, putting my career there and at the same time taking care of my kids and then taking uh, my master's degree. So it took me five years to finish my master's degree because I was doing everything at the same time. So for young women who would like to follow my path, okay, if you can do it, uh, the challenge is build your career and at the same time build your family, but with a close support. You're going to be crazy if you don't have any support. (laughs) Second, um, well, when I was building up my career, I grabbed every opportunity that, that opens so uh, I went into graduate studies because I was given a fellowship by the International Rice Research Institute. I went into trainings in different countries, conferences, visits to laboratories. 
And it educated me and opened doors for more opportunities and networking. So uh, during that time, that was when I was uh, completing my PhD dissertation in the U.S. And uh, my my difficulty was how will I finish my dissertation? (laughs) So when I went to a conference in Amsterdam, I met somebody who really helped me through and we collaborated. And that was why my uh, dissertation became a Bible for genetic engineering in rice uh, back then. And then uh, the third one that I would like to share is that um, I used to be a quiet, shy, and very, (laughs) I had a very, I felt so inferior, but it did not do me any good. So my advice is for young women, build your confidence. Don't be shy. Approach your science idols. Talk to them. Show them what you got. And that will be, uh, that will lead to collaborations and partnerships. Yeah. When you get into trouble, like what I have sometimes and in embarrassing situations, women can use their charm. It works. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Well, that is, that is great advice. I'm tired of just listening to, to everything you went through, I know it. And it's not, it's not sadly, the dissimilar, I guess, to working mom stories of professionals and, and the journey. And um, well, just amazing. It really is. I think you're a terrific role model and great advice. Well, that brings me to another question I wanted to ask you. You mentioned, of course, where you hang your hat now at ISA. Um, there's a lot of work that's happening there and um, a lot of important work that's happening there. And, and one of the big pieces I know ISA produces every year is this report, annual report, detailing the progress with adoption of of biotech crops for commercialization worldwide. And I know we spoke with Dr. Maha, your colleague uh, last year about this a bit and um, and discussed the, the fact that it seems to me, maybe no agricultural tool or technology has been so misunderstood or really the sorts of more debate between fact and fiction than plant biotechnology or as it's known GMOs. And um, but certainly there's been some progress with global adoption, but maybe there's some evidence that things aren't uh, growing as fast as they should be, or maybe stalling a bit. So I'm wondering, if, in your opinion, is there one particular culprit with that that's limiting progress globally? And um, and if so, you know, what can food value chains stakeholders do collectively to help nudge things along? Yeah, uh, actually, this is a very good question. And I have uh, been involved in biotechnology for more than 35 years. And I've seen how the technology works from tissue culture to genetic engineering with protoplasts and then with gene gun and agrobacterium. And then we have crops commercialized during the first decade of commercialization, which is 1992 and uh, 2003. Uh, To me, I think it's the political will that is very important. And it rules and uh, it is influenced by farmers and consumers. So during the first decade of GM crop commercialization, some countries started adoption even without any regulatory framework. And the technology flourished. Well, as soon as the critics learned of successful adoption, they immediately want to stop it for so many reasons, including religion, human rights, environmental hazards, social economy, and many others. So uh, we need to know that when government and policymakers started to craft the regulatory framework, that was the trigger. So this slowed down and even hindered advancements in research, even event approvals, and consequently hindered adoption as well. 
Uh, there are countries who have excelled or who have excellent regulatory framework, but the political will is not there. So adoption is not there as well. But compared to countries with no existing regulatory frameworks, but GM crop adoption is great because the government has the political will and listens to the needs of the farmers and consumers. We have so many examples of this, like Brazil, Myanmar, Pakistan, and many others. So educating our policymakers, farmers, and consumers on the productivity and benefits of the products of modern biotechnology is therefore really essential. Our politicians should know what the benefits will bring to the country in terms of food sustainability. So that's what my thinking is. Thank yeah. you. It's yeah, a great answer. I, um, it, within that, and I think it's hard to argue political will is such a central, uh, puts such a central role in that, in that discussion around adoption. And you mentioned one of the influencers in the context of political will is of farmers. Of course, um, mm -hmm. it's hard to think about any of this discussion without the farmers. And here in Asia, my next question, uh, by the way, this is the question I have for you around um, a challenge for farmers in particular. And here in Asia, of course, when you're talking about farmers, you're talking about mostly smallholder farmers. We're home to the most number of smallholder farmers and we're home to the smallest size farms anywhere in the world. And so many challenges go along with that. But one of the bigger ones, it's, of course, uh, the growing prevalence of prolonged droughts and floods and erratic weather patterns and um, just so much pressure that's uh, mounting for these smallholder farmers. And just last year, CropLife Asia surveyed over 520 rice, corn, fruit, and vegetable farmers uh, from the largest crop producing countries in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, and Vietnam. And over 68% mm -hmm. noted climate change as the key challenge they're facing right now. And that's not really surprising, I don't think, to anyone. So a big setup there. My question is what needs to be done to ensure these, these smallholders are enabled to meet this growing challenge? Yeah, there's a lot to be done, actually, uh, because we know that uh, the farmers are our food producers and we rely on them so much. And uh, this has been the, the motivation for our researchers, uh, research and development workers. And so we have improved crops, livestock, microbes that would meet the challenges of climate change and our increasing population. Uh, as well. So these research the research products are almost there or are there already. But what we used to uh, so what we used to say, farmers are the most intelligent sector of the food value chain stakeholders because they have studied the crops, what crops and traits are suitable for their land, what time of the year should they be planted, the cultural management, and others. So making these new products of modern agriculture available to them will ensure that they are being helped. And how do we make this available? By enabling the, capacity, the capacities, the government capacities to help them through regulation and providing them the necessary technologies, the know-how on how these new improved crops and traits will be used. There should be harmonization and synchrony in product approvals so that trade is not disrupted. This is very essential. And we know a lot of experience in this uh, because some farmers uh, lose, their, there's, there's no profit because the exporting country is not, uh, the importing country is not importing anymore. So crops are already stalled in, um, in ships and they are not available to the farmers. So there should be uh, a sort of, um, Farmers should know and farmers would lobby or would request that the government provide them this help. 
that uh, they should be provided the seeds so that there will be no problem in cultural management and in raising food for the country. So seeds and seed technology is there and we uh, will make it profitable for our farmers if it's available to them. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, we've heard that uh, these first 15 or 16 interviews about technology. And that's what it goes into, right? The, the technology that's available to farmers uh, to, to mitigate those effects. We're nearing the, the close of the interview. And the last question I have, if you was kind of a, a, a diversion or a departure from some of those times we talked about and asking maybe if you could look at your crystal ball and look forward into this uh, next five or 10 years. And, mm-hmm. and as opposed to some of the challenges, maybe are there some good things that you see on the horizon that, you know, you think are, are, are on tap for uh, for this region in the next five or 10 years? Yes. Uh, when I, uh, I got involved in writing the brief uh, when I started with AISA in 2007. And from then, I was already hearing BT rice from China. And, uh, and then succeeding years, we see a lot of studies on rice. We have... Uh, nutrient-efficient rice, salt-tolerant rice, submergent rice, and still it's not in the market. So I'm hoping that with golden rice being approved for commercialization, and hopefully it will be at the farmer's hands by the end of the year, it could be, this could be the eye-opener for our researchers to pursue it, to make it, uh, to seed increase it, apply for commercialization so that it will be there. You know, the, the Asian region is the highest eating rice eating part of the world, and um, rice efficiency is still a problem. So, if um, GM rice with different traits or modern uh, products of modern biotechnology being be it GM or genome edited, it will be a dream come true if it will be available in ten years. Actually, yes, I was a member of well. I was a member of the Golden Rice uh, Project when I was at Freiburg, uh, and uh, I I met uh, we 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 met with uh, Ingo, and I was with Peter, and Ingo was saying, I hope that before I perish, I would see the Golden Rice in the farmers' hands, and we're happy that it's still going going to be. It will come to fruition. It will be there, and Ingo will be happy. <laughs> Oh, it, yeah, yeah. Well, it would be an amazing tool to put in farmers' hands. You're absolutely right. I don't disagree. We'll have you back on when that when that happens. We'll have you back on, and we'll do this again, and we'll talk about uh, about what it all means. Um, thank you so much for doing this. It's, it's, it's great to hear from from you on such a special day, and and you. you're, you're officially off the five good questions hot seat. We we appreciate you. <laughs> so we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Nice talking to you, and nice to contribute to this observance of women and uh, girls in science. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Olaf. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another Five Good Questions interview. 